the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the November 2014 podcast. This month, we'll hear from Dr. Shunmei Young, who's just returned from Sierra Leone, where she's been working on setting up a treatment centre for Ebola. They were busy trying to install the water, put the power in, put in a communication system, build the road up to it. So it was still very much work in progress. We'll also be hearing more about the use of drones in the Monkey Bar project. Dr Jonathan Cox helped us get into the swing of it. Our particular focus is on this particular parasite called Plasmodium nolzii. Um, it's not traditionally seen as one of the sort of four main malaria parasites which affects humans. It's kind of like a new kill on the block. Professor Laura Rodriguez, an epidemiologist originally from Brazil, tells us about a project to link up with researchers in Latin America and tackle some of the biggest health issues faced in the region. We also have collaborations in uh, Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia... Nicaragua and Guatemala. And finally, we talked to Professor Jiman Paniyamakal from the Public Health Foundation of India, who works closely with the school and is currently working on ways to reduce the leading cause of death in India, cardiovascular disease, by addressing the nation's diet, fitness and tobacco use, all in the workplace. The physical activity levels are dramatically decreasing. The healthier diet patterns are, which were previously practiced in the community or the, in the, the, the individuals, they are changing to unhealthy practices. The biggest Ebola outbreak in history has claimed the lives of more than 5,000 people and threatens many more. The school is at the heart of the global response to the crisis, and Dr. Shunmei Young has recently returned from Sierra Leone. We talked to her to find out more about the work being done there. So I was in Kerrytown, where Save the Children is setting up a new Ebola treatment centre. So I was there right in the middle of the set-up period and ju- left just before it opened. Um, and I was there as a clinical advisor. Um, so I'm a paediatrician by training and I still work as a um, honorary consultant. And I was really keen to, I guess, put some of my skills and in, in my more clinical skills to work, really. It seemed um, like a fantastic opportunity, really. It was a huge need, and so that's what I did. And have you got any previous experience with Ebola? I mean, what made you think, I can do this? It's a really good question. Um, No, I have no um, experience with Ebola. It was one of the things I wondered about how useful I could be, given that I hadn't had any direct experience in Ebola or working in a treatment centre. And it became fairly clear that actually, you know, there is a pretty small pool of people who have had that experience. And, and it was felt that just, I guess, having some clinical skills, that that would be better than nothing, I guess. Paint me a picture of what was it like? What was the setup like when you arrived? And what did you see maybe as the most pressing needs? By the time I arrived, the um, Ministry of Defence, the UK Ministry of Defence, were kind of overseeing the construction and the some 20 subcontractors or something that they have working for them, had been working pretty flat out. And so by the time we'd arrived, to me it still looked like a construction site, but you could actually discern that there was um, there was a row of um, what would be the ward, so kind of blue plastic sheeting, tin roof, um, and a few um, concrete um, structures. Uh, but it still looked very much like a construction site then. 
they were busy trying to install the water, put the power in, put in a communication system, build the road up to it. So it was still very much work in progress. So as well as the, the physical buildings and the team you were putting together, could you already, when you first arrived, start to see the signs of the disease affecting the people? It's interesting. It was my first experience um, in Sierra Leone, so I didn't have anything to compare it to in terms of um, being able to see, you know, tell whether society was somehow kind of functioning differently. The market still seemed very busy. I didn't see the images that I was familiar with from television, for example, in terms of seeing very quiet markets, people wearing gloves, washing hands before having, you know, handling money. Didn't see that. I think the most striking thing about it was the number of, was going through checkpoints. So um, even the journey from the airport to Kerrytown, we stopped at, I think, five or six checkpoints. And often these are um, just local checkpoints, so put up by the community, where you'd have to get out the car, wash your hands um, with chlorinated or supposedly chlorinated water um, and then have your temperature taken and then pile back into the car and um, carry on. So that was the, I think, the first thing that you can think, right, OK, this is, this is not normal. And that started as soon as you start, uh, arrived in the airport. So what do you see as the key things that you had to get across there? What, what were your, your key aims to teach people how to do? So I was tasked with developing the training programme and training the health team, so doctors and nurses. And they were made up of members of the Cuban Medical Brigade. So there were 60 doctors and nurses from the Cuban Medical Brigade and Sierra Leonean healthcare workers. 60 Cuban medical doctors and nurses and then 30 Sierra Leonean um, community health officers and community health assistants, so kind of like doctors and nurses. My feeling with the training was the priority was really focusing on their safety and that felt like a huge responsibility. So really training on the personal protective equipment, PPE, um, so how to put it, put it on and more importantly how to take it off safely because that's the kind of, that's the time that one's at highest risk. It's quite a passive process, actually. So it, the a hygienist stands on the other side of a, a, kind of a line and sprays you down with 0.5% um, chlorine. You know, you start off by kind of getting sprayed down in the front and the back, and then you take off your apron. Uh, between every single step, you have to wash your hands, your glove, your double gloved hands, uh, gradually removing um, pieces of equipment, and each time trying to make sh make sure that you're not somehow kind of contaminating yourself. So we spent quite a lot of time trying to develop the protocol and the teaching for that. And then also one of the things I was trying to do was develop the accidental exposure drills. So in the unfortunate event that someone would have some kind of exposure, whether that be some, you know, something not so dangerous, like they notice a tear in their suit, you know, the kind of the white or yellow suit that you see people wear, without any obvious exposure, um, through to having, say, splashes of vomit or kind of spit in their eyes, through to having a needle stick injury. So if you, you know, for example, just taking blood from a patient or trying to put an intravenous line in and, and stab yourself by mistake, what should healthcare workers do in, in those circumstances? It's difficult because... Um, on the one hand, you want to try and get rid of that as quickly as possible, but there's a danger then of taking off your protective equipment while you're still the red zone, as we call it, which is you know, the area that's potentially contaminated on the ward. Um, and so stri trying, striking a balance in terms of when should you just try and get out and go into the de decontamination area as quickly as possible, and when should you try and do something immediately and trying to work out sensible protocols around that.
And we see people on the news wearing these huge suits and, and treating patients and working mm. with patients. What are some of the difficulties of working under those conditions? As you can imagine, it's mainly heat and sweat. It's really, really hot working in those suits in a tropical climate. What's equivalent to like a, a, te a tent with a, a, a tin roof. It's quite claustrophobic because you've got all this... You know, they've got a mask around your mouth, you've got a hood on, and you've got goggles. Um, you can't hear properly because of the hood. You know, maybe you can't make yourself heard so well. Uh, if you've got an itchy nose, you can't scratch your nose, so you're not allowed to touch, you know, you're not allowed to touch your goggles, you're not allowed to touch oh. your mask. If you want to sneeze, you can't... You think the polite thing to do is bring your hand to your face, you can't do that, or you can't bury your nose in your sleeve. And also recognising signs that people are getting heat illness so they're getting kind of getting dehydrated or getting too hot because what you don't want is getting getting to the stage where um, yourself or a colleague are at the point of fainting and collapse on the ward but you can imagine that can that's happen. not a good look in not, Ebola clinic. Not, no absolutely then how on earth do you get this person out safely they're horizontal how do you get, to, you know, get them to decontamination and get them out of their their very hot suit safely it's you know we were really trying to emphasize prevention what are some of your most striking memories from that time? I, I loved working with the people I was working with, both in terms of the other team members from Save the Children. It was a small team. Um, everyone was working flat out, trying to achieve what seemed to be this... You know, it was an enormous task. Everyone was trying to help each other out, so um, whether it was you know, the nutrition guy helping with the shift stuff in the warehouse, me getting the security manager and the, the data manager to come and help me do some PPE training because it's quite difficult to on your own. Uh, just everyone trying to help out while they're trying to kind of get on with their little bit of the kind of um, the, the project. Um, so the, the sense of kind of teamwork and camaraderie was quite um, memorable. And also the lovely um, Cuban and um, Sierra Leonean staff, this kind of sense of duty and... Um, responsibility um, to kind of help their fellow human being in this time of crisis. It was really inspiring. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. In the last decade, reports have emerged from Malaysia of humans infected with Plasmodium nolsi, a malaria parasite that was previously thought only to infect monkeys. At the risk of droning on, sorry, we've been finding out how drones have been used to collect vital data. We spoke to Jonathan Cox from the school about the Monkey Bar project. Well, the Monkey Bar project is essentially a multidisciplinary project which is addressing this whole issue of the changing epidemiology of the plasmodium nolsi. And because it's a, a sort of disease system which involves a variety of factors or stakeholders, if you like, you've got the mosquitoes, you have the monkeys and you have the people, we have different groups within the project working on all of those different aspects. So we have primatologists, for example, who are tracking macaque monkeys using GPS collars and we're, we're mapping those distributions. We have people, anthropologists and social scientists, who are working more on the human side of things, trying to work out what people do and where they go, and there's a certain amount of GPS work involved in that. And then we have a whole group of people trying to characterise the sort of mosquito sort of uh, side of the equation. So what are the major vectors 
involved in transmission and what is what are the relevant behaviors where do they hang out and where where do they bite and what do they bite do they just bite monkeys or do do they bite people too and so we have all these different elements in play Um, and then what we're trying to do from the land use point of view is collect the sort of contextual data the changes in land use which are happening while all of these other things are going on in terms of changing uh, patterns of vectors or changing movements of monkeys or changing movements of people our particular focus is on this particular parasite called Plasmodium nolzi. Um, it's not traditionally seen as one of the sort of four main malaria parasites which affects humans. It's kind of like a new kill on the block. So we've known for a while that humans can get it um, sort of in a, in a natural setting, but we've always assumed that those cases would be you know, fairly one-off or, or fairly sporadic. Could, could yeah. you tell me, are people actually dying as a result of this parasite? Yes, I mean, the interesting thing about this parasite is, A, we have sort of in the past underestimated uh, the sort of public health significance of the parasite, mainly because we haven't had the diagnostic tools to be able to separate out this parasite from all the other types of malaria out there. But now we have these more sensitive diagnostics. A, we've realised there's a lot more out there than there, than we thought there was, but B, that this is an increasing problem, particularly in some, not everywhere, but in some parts of the world. So where we're working in Borneo, for example, this particular species of parasite, Plasmodium nolzi, is now the most common form of malaria in humans in the state of Sabah. So we're talking about, you know, potentially a major public health issue. And if you couple that with the fact that actually it's not a particularly nice infection to get, you know, it can cause very severe disease, it can cause death, um, then some combination of very high case numbers um, and fairly severe outcomes at times means we have essentially quite an important public health issue here. And so one of the things we're trying to work out in the Monkey Bar project is what are the drivers, what are the reasons behind these increases in cases. How how Mm -hmm. do drones come into this research? One of the sort of central hypotheses that we're exploring in the project is that the increase in cases is really a reflection of changing land use and land cover. And in particular, one of the things we want to explore is the effect of deforestation on disease transmission. So we think it's likely, for example, that as the forest cover changes, the various populations of monkeys, of humans, and of mosquitoes, their dynamics also change, and the interactions between those populations change. So one of the things that say we're exploring as a hypothesis is that it's land use change which is driving this change in, in, in disease transmission. And so what we needed to do within Monkey Bar is have a way of a producing extremely detailed land cover maps for our field sites, but more particularly a way of updating those frequently so that we could keep track of changes in land cover as they happened. And some of those transitions can be extremely quick. So um, that's why we thought a drone would be most appropriate for our purposes. What would the alternatives have been? The traditional alternatives would be to use satellite data, but we realised actually quite quickly that we couldn't depend on satellite data for our mapping. There's certain constraints in using satellite data, uh, the main one being that you can't always get the sort of data that you want when you need it. So the data might not be detailed enough spatially, uh, they might not be available for the dates that you need them, and even if they are available, you might find they're covered in cloud. I mean, that's something that we come across a lot um, in tropical areas in particular. There might be lots of data available, but trying to find data without clouds in them um, can, can be really difficult. So a drone is a, is a nice way of getting around some of these issues because you've got lots more 
control essentially over how you collect data and when you collect data and the sort of data that you collect. And one of the great advantages of using a drone is you can actually fly beneath the clouds and so cloud contamination as we call it doesn't become such a big problem. That was Dr. Jonathan Cox. You can hear the full interview with Jonathan by visiting the school website at lshtm.ac.uk. For the past few decades, the school has been working in partnership with institutions across the Latin American region to improve public health and advance research. I talked to Laura Rodriguez, head of the school's Latin America network, to find out more. The school traditionally has had a much bigger presence in India and Africa, and mostly the English-speaking African countries. Uh, we always had uh, some collaboration with other countries, but they were more spontaneous and not really organized or even... Uh, we were not even uh, that aware of where they were or who was going, doing what in Latin America. Uh, a, a few years, a couple of years ago, uh, the senior leadership team of the school uh, discussed uh, partnerships, strategic partnerships, and um, took the decision to include um, a, a couple of other priorities. So, although we continue with Africa and India, um, they decided also to include um, Singapore and now China and Latin America, especially Brazil. Um, and what kind of, what, what does the collaboration mean as such? What kind of projects are we talking about? Okay, so I think the first thing to say about the collaborations of Latin America is because Brazil and other Latin American countries are middle-income countries, they have strong academic sectors, they have strong research funding, they have strong publication records, they have their own research. So it's a, much, it's a very balanced uh, collaboration, much more of a partnership of equals. And that's a very exciting uh, aspect of the collaboration of Latin America. And the collaborations go across all disciplines and subjects in the school. Um, so we have projects that are about evaluating policies or looking at inequalities. We have projects that are very much looking for uh, risk factors for diseases, evaluation interventions, and uh, and we have strong collaborations in the lab, looking molecular biology of parasites, immunology. How many countries are we talking about? Brazil is, of course, the largest country in Latin America, and we have collaborations in many, many states in Brazil. We also have collaborations in... Um, Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, uh, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. We also have collaborations in Mexico. It's very impressive in that it has a very large geographical spread, very large the range of disciplines and, and diseases and subjects. So it's a very rich, like the London School itself. It, it uh, I think, replicates the diversity of projects at the London School, which of course means uh, more possibilities for uh, uh, multidisciplinary research. But I think what's uh, specific of Latin America is that we don't have projects there. So it's not there are staff of the school that goes there and then do research there in collaboration with Africans, but it's in a sense, it's our presence there. This is much more um, exchange. And I think there are 
a very large number of Brazilians and, and other Latin American staff coming to the school. I think in particular interest is the program Science Without Borders in Brazil, who um, very re- in the last three years, the president of the country, so is a presidential initiative, decided to make the science in Brazil more international. They realized this globalization, science cannot be done in isolation, so they started this program where they plan to send 100,000 scientists, undergraduates, postgraduates, in all countries in the world, international program. And, uh, That's extraordinary, so 100,000. 100, Many are undergraduate students doing an exchange for a year. So I think possible developments for the future, I think we would like to see more large research grants, more substantial programs. I think we're doing a lot of uh, many good programs, uh, but I think it's as the collaborations continue, I think we develop trust and we build capacity and we build links and I can see bigger, more substantial collaborations. Uh, I think the teaching collaboration is still very incipient. Um, Collaborations on teaching are slightly more complex because you can, you have to negotiate regulations and mutual recognition, etc. So at the moment we have students coming here, masters or PhD or short courses, and we have students going there mostly to do their projects for the PhD. But I think there are endless uh, possibilities of joint courses, maybe joint degrees. And uh, I think we did mostly a robust uh, beginning, and I think the future will be more creative, but I think there's uh, lots of possibilities. And just looking through this publication here, you can see immediately how diverse the projects are. We go from biodiversity to disability to women's health to water and sanitation. It's extraordinary. I mean, it really does cover everything, doesn't it? Yeah. So what next? I think a lot of our collaborations in the past were in countries that speak English. And I think that maybe that was necessary in the past, but as the way the world becomes much more global, the language of science is English. And I think the fact that those collaborations are not in English-speaking countries has not been a barrier. So I think we should reverse our perspective and not be hesitant in have collaborations with Latin America because the fact that the, the languages I in a very large degree no longer barrier. I think we can become irrelevant. Irrelevance, yes. yeah. My view is that English is the language because it's the language of science. I don't think it's a you know a country over another country and and sometime, and I talked about this uh, when I give my courses on how to write scientific papers, for example, in Brazil. And uh, a student once said, oh, so if China continues their scientific production, will we all be writing papers in Chinese in the next 10 years? And I say yes. And I totally believe that, you know, there's nothing to say that in 20 years we'll not be writing in Spanish. That was Professor Laura Rodriguez. Professor Jiman Panayamakal is an epidemiologist based at the Public Health Foundation of India. Over the past decade, he has focused on ways to reduce the impact of cardiovascular disease in India, particularly amongst young people. Jiman tells us more about the scale of the problem and his work. Cardiovascular disease is a leading cause of death and mortality in India. It contributes to more than a quarter of deaths uh, in India. 
what it means in absolute terms is that more than 2.5 million deaths annually what is more striking is the fact that it occurs prematurely that means um, in the productive life years age group uh, for example if you compare uh, the western data with the indian data uh, less than a quarter of death occur in the age group of less than 70 years in the west whereas the corresponding f figure for india is more than half the dramatic increase in the cardiovascular disease in the in the past two decades in india are essentially because of two reasons one is the the physical activity levels are dramatically decreasing the healthier diet patterns or are which were previously practiced in the community or the in the, the, the individuals they are changing to unhealthy practices then the tobacco use and the low socioeconomic class group increasing every day uh, not the smoking form of tobacco but non-smoking forms of tobacco which is widely prevalent in indian settings in addition to that uh, there are other biological reasons like the lipid structure is different the, the fat fat structure is different uh, we are known for the the low muscle and high fat phenotype how is your research helping to bring down this this burden or alleviate this problem we, we have been working different strategies and one of the main strategy that uh, that was successful that we found successful was a targeted approach as you know that to reach out to the entire indian population is very difficult we are 1.1 billion people so we need to develop some innovative strategies so one of the strategy that we developed was a targeted approach selecting targeted group for primary prevention effort in worksite settings so selecting only the worksite settings and developing an a cardiovascular disease prevention program the way that we tested is that we selected six industries as intervention in worksites and one industry as a control worksite and developed a package of interventions after discussing each point with the employees as well as the management so we had to take the management also into confidence and also the employees also into confidence. Also, we talked with the employees union because it, it was important for us to take their consent as well to implement these programs. And the mainstay of the program was primary prevention efforts with um, um, basically to improve the, the, the awareness levels of risk factors and the disease condition in the, in the, in the, in the population. So it was achieved through, you know, uh, pa the pamphlets or posters which are displayed in different uh, places in the, in the, in the, the, in the industry. Uh, we involve the management seriously into the program. So when the management themselves, they change, through that we could influence the social desirability of the employees. And in addition to that, we worked with the management and changed the, uh, the, 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 the canteen menu, the food inside the canteen. We provided healthier alternatives. Initially, uh, they are suspicious about all the actions that we do generally because they are suspicious about the management, the reason why the management is changing the menu. They are thinking it as a cost-saving strategy. Uh, but this, at the same time, uh, after talking to them, once you convince them saying that the healthier alternatives are not really the cheaper alternatives, they are, they are good for your health, but you may have to pay a little extra for the, for these healthier alternatives. Even if you do that, it's good for your health. Then they will think that, okay, okay, the, the, the senior management is doing something good for us. Then it's very, very easy to change, uh, to, to engage with multiple people. 
and uh, the other interesting fact that uh, now we we were thinking about uh, improving the physical activity um, exercise, exercise pattern or the physical activity level in the, the the employees but at the same time limited space available for the employees to do the physical activity or exercise so uh, we talked with the management and said that okay all of these employees are coming to the industry or the work site uh, in uh, motorized vehicles so we suggested that uh, rather than coming to the, the the main gate why don't you stop your bus services a kilometer away from or half kilo, half a kilometer away from the main uh, main gate again there was a lot of res lot of resistance but once you know we start we we talked with them and said that okay this is important for you to do some level of minimum physical activity then they uh, understand the importance of it and also when the senior management started doing that then people follow and this program was successful at the end of the program the blood pressure the cholesterol uh, as well as the sugar levels came down um, by more than 5% in the intervention arm whereas it has gone up dramatically in the control arm that was professor jiman paniyamakal and as always, you can find out more and listen to extended versions of all the interviews on this month's podcast by visiting us at lshtm.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.